0: This is our Suburb Trends Report for February 2022. We'll be looking at where prices are moving across the country, either up or down, and why they're moving. And in this episode, we'll be discussing build-to-rent or multi-family dwellings and the potential impact on mum and dad high-rise investors. We'll also talk to Kent about his new win-loss ratio. Can't wait for that one. Welcome to the elephant in the room. This is the podcast where we love to talk about the big things in property that never usually get talked about about. I'm Veronica Morgan, real estate agent, buyer's agent, co-host of Fox Deals Location, Location, Location Australia and author of Auction Ready.
1: And I'm Chris Bates, mortgage broker. Before we get started, I need to let you know that nothing we say on here can be taken as personal advice. We always recommend you engage the services of a professional.
0: Don't forget that you can access the transcript for this episode on the website as well as download our free full or report. Which experts can you trust to get it right? The, elephant in the room.com.au This month, we've asked Kent to look into one often touted solution to housing affordability, build to rent. It's a significant sector in some overseas markets. And if it takes off here, like it looks like it will, it could change the property investment landscape for many existing apartment owners. Kent, can you kick us off briefly by explaining how you tackled this challenge?
1: Yeah, so um, I, I looked at the multifamily marketplace a few years back, um, and it's, uh, that's what it's called in the United States, multifamily dwellings. And uh, we are adopting the term build to rent, um, but uh, one of the same thing. And the study back then was quite enlightening. There were over, again, this was a few years back, there were over 2.8 million multifamily uh, dwellings nationally uh, in the US, but in the last ten years, if you look at some of the uh, approvals, uh, building approvals um, throughout the UK, the US, and now Australia, this is a big thing. This is a, a really significant growth sector. So there is no doubt it's going to be a very significant part of the property landscape in Australia. Um, so what I've been doing is uh, uh, watching the news feeds. I've been uh, uh, looking at a website called The Urban Developer, which is a terrific site and. It seems to me that every second or third post that comes out seems to be referencing build to rent. Um, so it's going to be quite a significant part of the, of the landscape. So uh, what I wanted to cover today is uh, to discuss, you know, where are these things going? Where are we seeing some of the approvals? And it, and it appears to be that many of these uh, buildings and approvals are going or being planned for some of the uh, higher density locations. And it's quite interesting. So if we pick on a Fortitude Valley, or if we pick on some of those inner uh, city suburbs in Melbourne, um, they're building these in locations that are already uh, high vacancy, uh, high risk for investors. So that was the, uh, the theme for today.
0: Which begs the question, why are, they all, why are they building them where there's already oversupply? And this is something I just don't understand. Do you have a,
1: a, an inkling? I really, I, I would have imagined that, that, that you would have much better options. Um, there's you know, markets all over the country uh, that are in undersupply. And you know, there's several regional markets where uh, there's hardly any building approvals for anything, uh, hardly any villas or apartments. Yet we've got vacancy rates well and truly holding below 1% all year long. So to me, I look at it and say the go-to seems to be the city locations, but the yields and and you know overall market opportunity and risk seem so much better, not in the high-density city locations at the moment. So maybe they know something that we don't know.
0: Yeah, I think we probably need to find somebody to interview on this because- I feel like they must like either they're all eating, drinking the same or eating the same hash cookies or, um, <laughs> <laughs> do you know what I mean? Like, it's like, they all subscribe to some belief that, I don't know, seems to contravene the evidence that we see. I mean, I look anecdotally and and honestly, this could just be my, it could be a, a, a wrong assumption, <laughs> a wrong opinion. <laughs> um, You know, like, for instance, you look in places like Waterloo or you look in Docklands in uh, uh, Melbourne, right? And pre-COVID, because I haven't travelled to these places since COVID, (laughs) but a lot of service departments are in those areas. And I think of one developer in particular, Meriton, who would build these huge buildings and then run a service department business. Now, I don't have any evidence here. I could have made completely the wrong conclusion, but I seem to think I think, oh, why are they running service departments in these areas? Um, can they not sell enough of the apartments that they've built? Like, is is it is it a design? Is it designed to allow them to hold them for that five years for capital gains? Uh, the is it GFs? What do you call it? GST? I, I don't know. I, and maybe I should just ask a question rather than formulate these these opinions myself. But is there something in the fact that these these are corporate landlords effectively? You know, yeah. they're actually the developer and the builder and, and then the corporate landlord. It's sort of the same thing in a way, but are they just holding off until there is a market for whatever it is they've built? But build to rent is a totally different model where basically it's a bit like owning an office tower, isn't it? Um,
1: yeah, it's, it is interesting, uh, but I think it's driven by the yield. So maybe an interesting way to say this, you know, the, uh, uh, the, um, the um, very smart operator, be it Meriton, um, have been doing, Part build to rent for a long time, no mm. doubt. So you know, we, we all know that they've got a fairly large uh, rent roll. Um, so you know, it, it's not an entirely new thing for Australia. So I'll wrap myself over the knuckles on that. It's um, there's been it has been done, um, but it's been done for proportions of the buildings, and I think that ability to drip feed the market, control how much goes on depending on um, what the demand is, mm. and you know, days of market inventory levels and price movement. Um, is, is a genius stroke for a merit, and they've been doing that and refining that model for so long. So, yeah. you, know, you know, hats off. But I suspect
0: um, they've been holding a lot of this stock a lot longer than maybe they anticipated in the first place.
1: <laughs> yeah, but, but you know, winning no matter what. Yeah. Um, I, 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 but I, I'd probably say that the, the, the driver for this, uh, and it's been covered in a lot of the documents. So JLL going back a couple of years now did a fantastic paper on, on researching builder end. So it's a couple of years old now. Uh, But they highlighted yields uh, in Australia of about half percent higher than what they were getting in the UK. So that was their, their, you know, schedule and looking at the costs. Um, In the US, the yields look similar, but uh, the US does seem to have a lot of tax incentives. So -hmm. the question I've got is, what are are these incentives going to be? So, you know, the US market seems to have a lot of information on this. They've got dedicated websites and categories so you can look through and as we look for houses and units, uh, and looking at rents and stuff to buy, they've got whole segments of their um, real estate portal listings around build to rent, looking at uh, multifamily. Um, so it's a big marketplace. It's a specialist marketplace. But um, the, the JLL report, that, again, is a couple of years old, was highlighting yields as high as 5.5%. Now, if you're in the commercial or retail sector, you'd probably be rather attracted to that type of yield. So uh, I'm guessing if you're looking, and, and again, I'm just uh, plagiarising here, the statements in some of the reports I've been reading is that it's a great way to diversify the risk. So, you know, if, if you've got a portfolio of property types or, um, you know, a property portfolio that includes um, non-resi, mm. adding in res seems to be the new go-to thing. But um, there's a lot moving in. And 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 the recent, recent articles I've been reading are saying that some of these um, – Uh, development sites, two out of three of the bidders are billed to rent. Interesting. It's huge.
0: And look, there is well-publicised pressure on, um, you know, uh, uh, supply, uh, you know, and and this is complicated in this country because you know all the politicians saying oh the answer to affordability is supply and then you know i'm really conflicted because i'm like well actually i don't want to encourage first home buyers for instance to be buying the sort of stuff that they're they're building when they talk about supply right because that's a one way ticket to to financial oblivion in many cases and and but in this build-to-rent space, it's a completely different asset. It's um and anyone who wants to invest in that, like would it'd be like a real estate trust, right? Um, they be you know, they'd be buying shares in a in a in a company that builds these things rather than individual apartments and that, and then there's certain economies to scale and there's it's a totally different construction.
1: Yeah, it's a different product entirely. But yeah. um uh, you know when I, I look at it and I say if you're a The point that I wanted to raise and and cover today for us is, if you're a an investor, what's happening now, and you can see it, we both look at it and say, if you're um if you've got a budget of six or seven hundred k, the RBA is calling it out as well. Unless you've got at least twenty percent deposit, you're you're very high risk, right? Mm. So these people stretching themselves, being forced entirely out of the housing market in Sydney. So I'll pick on Sydney. If I'm a first-time buyer with six or seven hundred k, I'm pretty much gone. I'm out of the house. I'm out of a house. So where do I go? What am I going to look at? Um, So now I'm looking at townhomes, villas, and units. And I think what what this pressure, this intense pressure on buyers, is going to push them into the into the apartment space in Mm -hmm. a big way. And then if we open up the gates to uh, an influx of people from overseas the demand for, for units is going to rise. So there's going to be a, a, an intense building up of pressure. There's, some of the building approval data area by area has been quite low. So I can probably see that insider. Uh, if, you, if you look at the numbers of, of approvals and the, and the built up supply that's about to come, if you look at affordability and look at the fact that if you're in, in Sydney trying to buy, you're out of options as a first home buyer, you can probably say this makes sense. The issue I have is does it make sense to compete against these guys? Mm. And if you're an individual investor and you're looking at, do I buy a, an apartment in Docklands or do I rent best, I'd probably go for the rent best option and find a house somewhere else and go and live in one of these builder rents.
0: Yeah, and, and it also begs the question for existing investors who invested, have gone and bought some of these new or newish apartments in in nearby buildings or, or suburbs to say, well, what's going to be the pressure that comes on them? You know, we know they're not good investments and often the investor themselves don't doesn't start sort of, that doesn't start dawning on them for some time if it does at all. And, you know, and then you get a number of these build-to-rent type um, scenarios, is that going to attract tenants away from, you know, the the individually held mum and dad investor apartment? You know, are the build-to-rent models going to offer more in terms of, I don't know, community, facility? What I mean, what are they going to offer that's different to attract? And I know we interviewed Adam Hurst, who was back then the GM of Mervac build-to-rent, and that was just before they released their first... Um, Complex a couple of years ago now, if you want to go back to that episode. And there were some interesting things that we did talk about there as to how they're going to attract and hold tenants. But it's, it offers that permanency for tenants who want long term leases. You know, the mum and dad investor locking a tenant in for a five year lease, well, that sounds like a good idea. But then what if you want to sell? You know, what if you want to move your daughter or son in there? I mean, it takes away the flexibility that a lot of people will like in a property. Mm. Um, and the build-to-rent won't have that problem. You know, they want long ten- long-term tenants.
1: And I, I'm, I'm looking at some of these uh, development plans and looking at, you know, an outline of some of the projects, and they look good. Mm. You know, if you are going to rent, I, I, you know, I'd prefer to rent there. Yeah. So, you know, they're, <laughs> going, to be, they're going to be a formidable competitor.
0: Mm. They're also built, and one of the things I remember Adam saying is that they use, the quality of finish is different because they're building as owners. They're not building to get rid of, you know, to, to pass the buck on to another, the next owner. Um, they don't care if the carpets only last two years, you know. Um you know, they build their tiled floors, for instance. So they build with durable materials, mm. um, you know, so there's a difference in the upkeep of these properties. And there's there's quite a number of differences that will, you know, it'd be interesting just to see as time goes on the un, how that unfolds.
1: Well, I think a lot of them will have on-site managers. And, mm. you know, so I, I think going through that routine of, um, you know, reporting a problem and then going through the the managing agent to the, to the landlord and back again. Um, I think a lot of those processes are going to be much more streamlined. You know, they could even have their own apps. They'll have their own Mm. operating systems that'll be very efficient. So it'll be in their interest to be able to manage things very, very efficiently, uh, maintain things well. A lot of them will be new, so maintenance issues will be fairly small short term, but it looks like a really exciting segment. And if you're a renter and you've had some bad experiences, this is going to excite the heck out of you.
0: 100 percent so you can definitely see, and there's and there are economies of scale even just in terms of fixing building defects and and because they do happen you know but the whole process is that a strata owned um building has to go through or an individual a strata building with individual lot owners has to go through will be quite different to one that a corporation owns the building um and you know i think too that um the whole process of you know moving in moving out there's just that whole streamline one stop one stop shop yeah you can you can definitely see how there'd be some issues uh, or attractions I guess for tenants so from an investor's point of view if you to invest in apartments because I'm not suggesting that all apartments are going to be bad investments it really does bring Front and foremost, the 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 need to choose your location very very well. The need to be really aware of the scarcity aspect as in what potentially could come on and compete with. Your property, and what do, what do you offer? What does the building offer? What does the location offer? Um, that can't be replicated, and I think that these are really important comparisons. Because even if you're talking about a big building with loads of facilities, you know, for an individual investor to buy into a building that offers those facilities that might be attractive to tenants, that that comes at a cost. Straddle cool. is higher. Um, you know, the the yeah. So interesting stuff. So are we? How many? Has there been any? Um, is there any data actually with how many buildings that are currently out there available? I mean, they take a while to get going, don't they? I mean, They these do.
1: So again, the only statistic I had was from this JLL report, which is a couple of years old. So I reckon it's certainly under uh, underestimating the, the volume. So I'm just trying to find the, I'm just flicking through it on the screen here just to, to try and pull it out. But yeah, it wasn't, it wasn't as big, but Again, you can kind of see, the, the, if you look at the trend lines of a, what's happening in the U- UK and the US, the last 10 years has exploded. Mm. And as, as I said earlier on, you know, 2.8 million dwellings in the US under this multifamily. And that will probably be a figure that, because that's a couple of years old when I did that. Mm. That's probably going to be wrong. Um, I just pulled <laughs> that out from an old report I had this morning. So, yeah, it's going to be a, a fairly sizable percentage. But in Australia, just trying to work, I can't see where, where it is, um, the exact statistic. I don't think the numbers look quite big. Um, what did they do or found something interesting? The number of units expected for the initial phase, 150 to 450.
0: Mm.
1: That's, um, mm, uh,
0: So, I mean, you could guess that probably there's one, you know, what's currently, well, what's being built or what exists in the states might be somewhat around about 1% of the total population. I think,
1: yeah, I think, a, yeah I think it's a bit bigger than that. And mm. some of the cities where you look at the percentages can be quite high because, again, they're concentrated. A lot of these are concentrated in the higher and medium density areas. Yeah. But, but that multifamily market is a lot of mar and par investors do that.
0: Now, why do they call it multifamily?
1: Um, I don't know. It's it you know, yeah, it's an interesting um terminology. Isn't you know
0: it? what I think of when, when I think of multifamily, I think of like the Italian family yeah, compound But yes. you know, Nono and Nono <laughs> well, lives downstairs and the kids will <laughs> have an apartment each with their kids, you know, they, with their kids and they, all the grandkids running around. It's, um,
1: it's, it's amazing though that the level of data that you could access in the US for the US multifamily stuff, it was huge. So I was looking at how could you build a pricing estimate model that mm. looked at you know, building a, a rental estimate, then using machine learning to do a capital value? And you, know, you anyway. So um, I think but, it's going to be a rather interesting uh, market. But I'm trying to flick through and find the pipeline here. It's Australian apartment. No, I'm trying to find. I can't. I didn't have it. On, I don't have my finger on the pulse for the exact number.
0: Uh-huh. But okay. So but. For an investor to look at buying into or buying shares in a company, for instance, that actually does, is entering this space, you know, you're, you're effectively buying, um, yeah, you're buying shares and you're not buying individual or you're not buying real property as, as you know, our apartment is called. Um, the yield is very, very important. And as part of that investment and you're effectively buying into a company. So it's a, different thing. Yes, sure the company may have assets that are buildings that house people, but it is a totally different set of criteria that you would use to decide whether you purchase that sort of asset or shares in that asset versus if you're going to buy an individual apartment yourself. The nice thing from an investor's point of view, you can choose, you can buy a few shares rather than an entire apartment. So so there's a lot more, you know, ability to diversify, I guess. But the individual apartment holders you know, I think that that's a highly risky segment anyway. We've got so much evidence around that. It's not funny. Um, and this is just going to make it more risky for anyone who currently holds these individual apartments in, the, in these high-density areas.
1: Well, you, you remember 2019 was all, you know, every headline was about building quality fiasco, mm. uh, opal towers. Um, You know, there's been some more recent um, uh, issues with um, structural problems. Um, I found one in, uh, you know, fair trading inspectors find structural issues at a major Sydney apartment development. But that particular one was a a prestige eastern suburb, small block Mm. of units. So I I tried to search and find, you know, the keywords I was doing my desktop research, solutions to building defects and whatever. And what has the government done this so uh, it seems to be all the news articles and all the research so somebody out there will know exactly what's going on but it, it's not my domain but i i tried to find out what what was going on with that whole private certifier building quality problems you know because it seemed to be in 2019 it was the only thing that was in the newspapers
0: well and even recently there's been a, still a number of buildings sort of rolling on from that there's one very recently it's in it campsie um that only I mean, narrowly avoided being uh evacuated the engineers sort of came at the 11th hour and said actually we can you know do some remedial works to stop it falling into the ground the building commissioner in new south wales uh, david chandler who we have interviewed and and i follow him on linkedin this guy is not a toothless tiger. Let me tell you, this guy means business. And I love his videos on LinkedIn. If you want to get into this and see what's okay. being done, it's very, look, it, hilarious is not the word really, but sort of is, you know, because he absolutely takes no prisoners. He just basically goes into these buildings and he and has a cat, someone's filming him and he points out all the shonky stuff and he's, he's got no patience for it either, but he's great at explaining, you know, basically why these are a problem or these, these finishes or, or uh, you know, these, these practices that have been uh, employed in, in constructing these things and why it's so diabolical. And, and he's, he's, yeah, he's making a lot of enemies. I'm sure he's had a few death threats.
1: Well, yeah, so, so i was just I'm reading a headline. This was um, 2019. And this was on ABC News. And I get—I think some of the greatest feedback you get or in, intel you get is reading the comments at the bottom because some are educated you know, people mm. who may be in the industry comment there. And uh, this headline was, buying a new high-rise apartment is a risk best best avoided. So, <laughs> you, you know, you are fighting against that. Those headlines probably haven't gone away. They've just been lost to COVID. <laughs> They've been crowded out by COVID in the last couple of years. But, you know, I just think, if you're buying an apartment, um, you know, you've just got new new level. You've got levels of risk that you don't have in other asset classes, mm-hmm. and obviously locations has got to do with it, a lot to do with it. But you, know, you need to go and do obviously your strata inspection report. So you got to look at the sinking funds. You got to look at if there's issues there. So you got then you got strata laws and bylaws. So you got all that complexity that you may not have in a in the other asset classes. Then you got the defect issue and the quality issue and the perception issue. Um, then on top of that, you've got all the stuff that's my domain, which is, you know, vacancy rates and high density equaling high risk over the last several years. Mm. Then you've got the difference between if you look at the average growth rate between, say, 2010 and 2020 on an a- annualised basis and you compare apartments versus houses all over the country, it's a no-brainer.
2: Mm.
1: You know, the, the, the housing market and year on year on year has just been, you know, for, for the majority of um, you know, metro, non rural locations, but your normal suburban type locations, houses have, have, have been by far the better asset class. So, I, I just the thing I worry now about apartments is you've got all those risks that you and I and we've always spoken about, all that data risk that can be very clearly articulated and, and proven. I've now got a new risk to call out which is are you going to be buying an apartment that's going to be sitting next to a stunning and very competitive build-to-rent building.
0: <laughs> right, so take that on notice if you're <laughs> looking at buying a um a new apartment or newish or even an existing but yeah, yeah. it's uh it's an issue. Okay, so um now we are you know, we don't always record these in the month that we release them. We are cheating here. I'm sort of bulk recording a bunch in um in December. I should actually mention um, because if anyone's sort of been listening, so this will be going to air in February. And um if anyone's listening, they're thinking, where's Chris gone? You know, because I haven't even mentioned it. <laughs> should mention it. Chris is on paternity leave. He's had a second child, or his wife had a second child in November and a little boy. And so he's taken some paternity leave and left me in charge of the hen house, which is (laughs) probably why there's been a few few, um, more, I don't know, some of the conversations I've been having have been... (laughs) unfettered by chris's questions just get to ask all my questions um anyway he'll be back soon he'll be he'll be back rested and then i'll have to go and take a break what do you reckon
1: oh that sounds good
0: i know it sounds fair doesn't it anyway so that's where he's gone um now what we're saying so this is going to be going to air in in february and it will be interesting because in february we will be able to look back on what was happening at the end of 2021 and know Uh, whether the boom had ended as some of the headlines have (laughs) have, have been saying (laughs) Or oh, weather it's just seasonal, end of year, slow down, you know, lots of stock coming on the market, particularly post-lockdown, but weather's good, buyers are out doing other things rather than buying property. In Sydney, it seems to be that a clearance rate in around 73 is no longer a mark of a hot market. It's actually, oh, that's a really slow market. And as one auctioneer said, um, I heard him say, to paraphrase, was like it's like we were driving down the freeway at 160 an hour and we're slowed down to 120 an hour and we think we're going slow.
1: I think that's a beautiful analogy. I'm looking at um, some of the data now and I'd probably say it's now 50-50. Um, you know, when we both last spoke about this, we had about a third of the markets flat, a third starting to cool um, and a third still rising. I'd probably say it's now 50-50. Mm-hmm. Um, um, but, again, that's that's the perfect way to describe it. There's still going to be pockets of significant growth. Mm. So even in Sydney where people are calling us the end, it's not. Uh, I <laughs> it, it, gets, it gets back to our, you know, my 500 market um, approach that there's 500 markets that, I like to analyse um, 350 housing and 150 unit markets, um, and of those that I now, anal- uh, my I've just finished my analysis, and I try and do I use machine learning to forecast just just slightly ahead of the curve in three months' time. What will the medians be? Medians is a tough one to to try and mm-hmm. forecast. It's a dodgy rec- um, uh, data set. To play with because medians, you know, when they, even at the SA3 level, they're dodgy. Yeah. For for by comparison to some of the other metrics, so I like to use days on market and I like to use inventory and forecast where that's going. Then what I say is, hey, if the median looks like it's going down and inventory is going up and days on market's going up, it just gives me a, 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 a better it's sense an extra of extra tick. Yeah, it's an extra mm. tick on the analysis. So mm. at the moment, I would say half. Of the markets that I'm analysing are, are saying the same thing prices easing, the inventory up, mm. the days of market up.
0: And then I think that's, well, A, that's to be expected towards the end of the year anyway. That's normal seasonality. Uh, B, it's to be expected when you've got two of Australia's biggest markets just came out of lockdown, um, you know, going into spring. So, Again, that's going to impact um, on it. And so, it, to some degree, none of that's surprising. But in the data, because you use AI, I love that. So, it's Kent's unbiased or agnostic data analysis. Um, does it show any patterns or trends as to where that softening is? You know, is there more areas that are predominantly softening versus others?
1: Yeah, so it's, it's uncovering a couple of key trends. I don't have that spreadsheet open in front of me. I've got my other one open right at the moment. So this is straight, <laughs> this is from memory. So what I saw, mm. um, uh, the, a lot of the apartment markets are starting to look better for the stuff we just covered. Because yep. people are coming back because they've got nowhere else to go. There's this affordability, affordability thing. Affordability. Mm. So, we're looking at market, uh, apartment markets, unit markets looking good. The asset class, specifically villas and townhomes, are, are really starting to show some interesting data. Um, there are a lot of slowdown areas through Sydney and a lot of the ones that have just been running at, I think, what did you say, 200 kilometres an hour down to 120. There's mm. a fair bit of that going on. But the markets still have a lot of lot of um um uh, heat ahead of them life <laughs> ahead of them are still some of these regional commutable type locations and anything you could consider affordable air quotes mm. affordable in the cities
0: yeah okay so and this is a danger for the affordability push because when people start looking for using that word affordable, particularly when they're investors, they often buy dud assets in dud locations, you know, because they're, they're, there's this belief in, with Australians that property is the best place to invest their money. And, you know, you and I were in a lot of those Facebook forums
1: and <laughs> we, <seen, laughs> we see the comments and the questions. Oh, and- but it's just getting worse. It's like the <laughs> amount of people now that are getting their hands on data and positioning themselves as a data expert mm. without any statistical background or, you know, suddenly it's like, oh, I've downloaded a report. I'm now going to portray myself as a data expert today on this Facebook group. And it's everywhere.
0: I oh, know. It's shocking. It's not just... The lack of data knowledge, it's a lack of property knowledge, and it's also a lack of human behaviour knowledge. Because at the end of the day, humans and how they behave is really ultimately what drives a property market up or down, or sideways. Yeah. And you know, by not understanding the, all those elements, and then be able to read the data and interpret the data correctly, or even just interrogate the data. Um, and I have to say, it's it's funny because like these regular interviews I have with you, I can't get over how much I learn I hope your listeners are, are you know <laughs> benefiting as much as I am maybe that's why I keep interviewing you Kents just because it's my own edification um but you know like I, I think about when I was doing statistics at uni I could not wrap my head around this stuff I couldn't you know but in the real world when I can see okay in properties and behavior and people doing this and that sold and then you know when I actually apply it all and backtrack, back test a whole bunch of stuff. It's like, oh yeah, it just lights me up. I get so excited. Megan was saying to me yesterday, cause I was doing this analysis and um, the impact of buying either a B grade asset, like say you've had a million dollars to spend, right? And you had the choice. I could buy an A grade asset, which is, you know, seems small, but it's in a great location um, versus a B grade asset that might feel like it's more value for money because it's bigger, but it's in a, in a, in a lesser location, and if you extrapolate over 10 years the difference in, in growth, and so I'm looking at case studies to illustrate this, and it's like, okay, what if I overpay for the A-grade asset by, say, 5% or 10% at, mm. at day one and then, and then looked at the same end result, right? Honestly, the difference, it's worthwhile buying an A-grade asset and paying 10% more than buying a B-grade asset. Uh,
1: absolutely. It's shocking. And
0: like I, I mean, even I'm surprised at the difference.
1: And this this year's been fascinating because we've had this uniform movement uh, of demand or inventory level, as my lead indicator, and some other key metrics, that was almost uniform across the country. Pretty much everywhere around the country, all these markets had the same pressure on them. The, the beauty of this year is that we can now say, well, how did they respond to that pressure? So it's been a brilliant case study year. Mm. Usually it's, you know, it's, it's ripple effect and it's, but COVID yeah. spread out the demand almost everywhere. Yes, there are exceptions because of the high density markets, but putting that to one side. Mm. Now you've got the ability to say, well, look at the, the, the change in the trend and in inventory level for region A, region B and region C or market A or suburb, whatever. Now you can see what you just said very mm. clearly articulated in hard numbers to say, what did it do in the last 24 months? And now you can see that you can. And what what this has taught me is the prime markets, for example, those that are constrained between, say, a main road and then the beach line. Yeah, yeah. And you've got the market on one side, on the other side, on the western side. If you're on, you know, New South Wales, Queensland, and Victoria, you've got the you know stuff on the uh, non-beach side of the mm-hmm. main road, and then the beach side. And this the, what you can see has happened is the ripple effect personified beautifully. Mm. And that the demand along that coastal strip has been very strong and it's still happening and it's now flowing out to places like Coffs Harbour, et yeah. cetera. Yeah. Um, but again, it's the same point people would you know, rather stick to and the demand goes up higher and higher and higher when they've got the money. And that's the thing. People have got money. I think we're underestimating how many people do have good coin. Mm. Um, so, yeah. so what's
0: the fascinating about that is, A time, like timed data or time series data would be really interesting because then you could start to see, well, where instantly gets an uplift versus what's the second best what's the bridesmaid suburbs and people go, oh, the ripple effect, that's a really good thing. It's like sort of, if you truly understand in a sort of, in a, in a condensed period of time, how somewhere is a second choice and why it's a second choice. Mm-hmm. You know, then you know why basically people, when when stock levels rise, when things slow down, when money's scarcer, those second choices go to the bottom of people's lists.
1: Mm. You know, Or they go just know, understanding why, would I buy why, there? why are they the second choice? Yeah. And is that changing? Is that changing? Yeah. Is, is that, is that exactly. changing? yeah. Or, or is it just it's the same profile, but it's an extra kilometre away or two mm. kilometres away. So they're the, almost the ideal ripples because it's just a matter of then supply and demand and time. But if it's um, a second choice because it's next to a coal loader, uh, it may or may not change.
0: Yeah, but well, that's the thing, isn't it? Now, one of the things that you've been working on, which is I was quite excited about, because what we're talking about here is that not everybody makes money and property. And in fact, in a rising market, I guess what, you're, what you've been sort of, I guess, highlighting, I don't know, in some of our previous episodes is that when everything's rising, it doesn't all rise equally. Some places and some properties will rise a lot and others will rise and then everyone will think they've done well because it rose, but they won't actually compare. They won't say it could have done better or why didn't it do better? There's none of that, that interrogation of the data once again. And then there's, so there's opportunity cost, but then there's also outright loss. You know, And even and you know, I bang on about the pain and gain report and, you know, interviewed Eliza Owen again, and that episode came out in December. Um, and even in a booming market, so the whole country's booming, basically, June 2021 quarter, 8.5% of properties that sold, sold at a loss. And that's a nominal loss. That's on the actual sale price versus the purchase price. Now, you've gone a bit further, haven't you? Yeah. I, Whoa, um, I love I've looked it. at the
1: reality of it to say, I've just come up with a simple arbitrary figure of 75%. I've said, if you're not making at least 75K between the last time you bought it and when you sell it now, you haven't adequately covered your entry and exit costs. Mm-hmm. So it's just an arbitrary figure, let alone across. ownership costs. <coughs> correct, correct. Mm. So, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a figure that, you know, anybody could argue against, but it's a uniform figure. Okay. So holding that consistent or constant. Well,
0: let me just put some, something around that. So yeah. typically your purchasing costs are 5% of the purchase price. And typically, your exit costs are around 3% of the purchase price. Sorry, the sale price. So, um, you know, those could add up to $75,000. Now, I'm going to look at arithmetic. Yeah. You know, on a $500,000, let's say a $500,000 property, right? So that's $25,000 purchase costs. Okay, so it's not going to be a $5,000 property. Let's say it's a $700,000 property. Roughly speaking, your total cost would be around the seventy five dollars Yeah. Yeah. That's a lot of property. The majority of property in Australia is worth more than 750
1: Yeah, exactly. So it's kind of working around that, that media. So I've come up, rather than some variable mm. number, I've come up with a fixed number so it makes it a bit easier for media as well because this is designed for some media output. Um, Are you trying to get a headline? Uh, always, actually. Um, <laughs> I, I've, been, I've been putting out some research reports with, um, with a journalist and it's been a little beauty. Great little business for us. So You're there going. we go. Um, asset class is the first thing to talk about. So mm. I've come up with something called the win-loss ratio. So I've mentioned, okay, if you've not resold the property, if there's no resale history, i.e. we didn't know what it last sold for, it's not in the sample, mm. okay? Sample size, about 278000 for the year that I've got. So it's a pretty damn good That's sample That's a size. good
0: size sample, right.
1: yeah. Yeah. Um, and then um, I've split it out. So um, effectively, by property type, eighty-two uh, percent of every house in the sample has sold for seventy-five k or greater. So what, the what, wind. Um, lo-
0: sorry, what? Uh, what? So is this over what period of time? Uh, it's and,
1: all, all sales okay. year to date. Australia wide. Australia wide year to date, okay. up until a few weeks ago. So
0: basically, in the last twelve months. Eighteen percent of houses, based on this seventy-five thousand dollar metric,
1: less than seventy-five k
0: sold at a loss.
1: Uh, at at a loss, if you define seventy-five k as a loss,
0: yeah, yeah, yeah. And and I would say, in many cases, if we did a percentage, should be interesting because you could put higher than that, and also you're not you're not including renovation costs either. Correct. So yeah. correct.
1: So so again, that was interesting, and. You know, there are some of these markets. You start to look at them and you say, "Well, where are these places?" And mm. WA and Queensland has a lot Ooh. that sold for less than seventy-five k. So um, that was uh, the housing, townhouses and villas, seventy-one percent. Wow. Win loss and units, apartments, units, same thing in my book. Sixty um, percent, so forty percent, forty percent of apartments in this boom time. Now, it's not a boom time for apartments in the high-density no. areas.
0: What if yeah. you, what's the, say you said, right, 75000 for a house and a slightly lower figure.
1: I could, yeah, I could do for that. Or an apartment. Yeah, yeah, again, but then I could go down a rabbit hole and have to start to split it and I could do it. I could do it dynamically, but I just wanted to come up with something mm. to say, yeah. here's a, yeah, if you were to kind of write it out as a journal and putting the report out, you say 75K. They don't so, care. They don't yeah. care
0: how you came up with the figure as long so it as it's a it good easier. figure. Mm. So, but I, uh, can I have a suggestion here? Yeah. Why wouldn't you do it at, okay, median um, sale price for houses, right, or, mm. yeah, median sale price and a percentage of that as, as you...
1: And hold that consistent so it's easy to write. Yeah,
0: and then the same,
1: yeah. I can do that. Yeah. So. Here we are. So based on my 75K methodology, here's of interest. Um, By far the winner, Tasmania, 91% win-loss ratio. Wow. 91% for the state of Tasmania. New South Wales came in second, 89% of all dwelling types, Mm. selling, reselling for 75K or over, followed by Victoria. Last place, WA. I was about to say WA. WA. Forty nine percent.
0: Oh wow, this is great. I mean, when we did our where to buy workshop for Home Buyer Academy, um, this should be the first metric.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, I, and then I've done some listicles because I love uh, these things, and I've done the top twenty list. and Richmond Valley Coastal was the number one in terms really? of the, yeah, not not the not the dollar value gain. But based on oh, the win, I thought you were going to say for is, loss.
0: I was like, This is the win-loss
1: win a- ratio. So yes. it was a 98% win loss ratio um, for Richmond Valley Coastal. Um, and that sample size was just over a thousand properties. And the median gain there was 645k. Mm.
2: So
1: that was interesting. Second, will just do the I'll do the top two or three per state. Waringa was next and then Pittwater was after that. So wow. these are kind of your well-heeled boom markets. But of interest, um, Manly came in at fourth and the, the gain there was $1.95 million, mm. $2 buck gain. So a lot of great place to have relatives. If you've got any old, rich, old uncles, that be nice to your old, your old uncle.
0: If, Only if they own in Manly.
1: <laughs> if they've just sold their property. <laughs> um, Surf Coast, the Bellarine Peninsula, uh, Nilumbick King Lake and Mornington Peninsula, one, two, and three in Victoria. Interesting. So there was that. You would, you'd like to go to Queensland next, wouldn't you? I've
0: got a little theory, though. I've got a little theory okay. happening here. Okay. The peninsulas, okay, they're very much that um, second home, um, you know, melburnians Melbourn- having their second home would be down one of those peninsulas. You know, Ooh. the um, Northern Beaches, remember the Northern Beaches after the GFC, oh, right? yes. Every second house had a full sales on it, and they had a full sales on it for a long time.
1: It so took- did Snives. Snives went through a real- Snives, did it? Snives <laughs> did, because um, uh, whenever there's that finite because I think back then, you know, back in the, early, in the 2000s, every time the financial markets had a hiccup, St. Ives had a bit of a blip in its market. The, the conniption I, did it. Well, I'm hmm. probably making an the assumption there might have been a, high, a lot of people leveraging mortgages to buy shares or whatever.
0: Maybe, yeah. There you go. So, so in those, so Northern Beaches, you know, depending on when people bought property, there's a long period of time where they did nothing. Yeah. And those are areas where really had a massive increase in value in price uh, price increases as a direct result of COVID.
1: Yeah, well, people are saying, I'm just going to go and live now in the Upper yeah, Northern Beaches. Yeah, well,
0: because I can work from home. I don't have to I worry about getting a home. bendy bus for two hours to yes, work. Yes, back so, And this is the thing. Before then, people would move to Avalon and then, go. you know, I'd speak oh, to some nuts. local ages, agents and they'd say, lot oh, about half the people that move here, you turn around and go back in a year because it's just too far. And you know, it's you'd be better off going to
1: Central Coast where you get a That's train. exactly. You read my yeah. mind. You'd, I'd, you'd rather go and live in the Central Coast. You could save a million bucks and save half an hour a day.
0: Yeah. So, so therefore, I'm just querying those particular locations at the top of the list because they, in particular, they are very, very positively impacted by COVID. If mm. we can rule out those ones that we know are a bit of no brainer COVID um, impacted, what sort of what, what are the, What's the next tier? Or some others?
1: Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, Coffs Harbour was pretty good. So mm-hmm. I'll stay in New South Wales. So Coffs yep. Harbour did quite well. But what's happening, Coffs is one of those markets now. So, you know, you know, the Coastal. people in the forums, they're all kind of starting to, hey, where do I go next? Where the do next Byron Bay. Where do I go? Where do I go? <laughs> um, so Coffs, but the numbers for Coffs look really positive. Um, so, and if you pick your suburb well, um, so it, it looks good. Balcombe Hills. Right. Southern Highlands. So, mm. again, you could argue that's in your COVID piece, yep. right? Mm. Um, and then number eight, Blue Mountains.
0: Okay, yeah. Blue Mountains. bit COVID, okay. too.
1: covid I could get away. bit tree change. Leichhardt. 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 All right. I sold too early. <laughs> and then and, and, and Leichhardt had just made just over a million bucks and eastern suburbs north, okay, the ritzy eastern suburbs mm. north, we had just over 1,200 in the sample. Ninety-six percent win-loss ratio, held for eight point six five years from the sample. One point eight six million dollar average median gain. Mm. All
0: right, so you're basically the sea tree change There's within a, a two-hour commute of There's a major a lot,
1: city. Y- um, Most of them are like that. I've got yeah. to say, a lot of them fit that bill.
0: Okay, so let's go the other end of the spectrum.
1: You want to talk about the losers. I want to talk about the losers. The bad guys. The bad okay. guys. <clears throat> okay, so we've got
0: the sad regions, guys.
1: <laughs> the bottom 20 SA3 regions with the um, worst win-loss ratio, mm. okay? Um, now, some of these um, effectively the median loss was just zip. The median ended up nothing. Um, and I think there's something in that, in that people are happy just to sell for what they bought it for. And I think Mm. it's a psychological thing. So that's an interesting statistic. I don't want to
0: lose money. I don't want to sell for, yeah, but you did lose money, even if you started at the same price. But but there's this sort of, no, it's a aversion. Yeah. And
1: most of the medians in this top 20 list actually were zero.
0: Wow.
1: Which is interesting.
0: Okay. So the median win-loss, zero, Um,
1: at the period owned? The period owned. Uh, I'm just, I'm now switching. So, like, how many a, years did
0: it take him to get nowhere?
1: Yeah, yeah, um, 7.89 over the 20 regions. So, what wow. is the region? It's an SA3. Yeah,
2: got it.
1: Statistical Area 3, anyone listens to the show knows it's my go-to. Yeah. Um, Goldfields, WA. Cool. Is that, that's me. I'm just going to have to say, I don't know if you could... Um, didn't that did your you, phone ringing? Did you hear that? No, I didn't hear that. No, I, it. Heard, I heard it in my, in, in, my, ear. <laughs> in my ear thing. So it's like, no. oh, gosh, I had it on silent, but it's gone through the, the map. Oh, it's weird, that. So WA Goldfields,
2: followed uh,
1: by Queensland Burnett. Now, Burnett, I think, do you know where Burnett is? No. Burnett's kind of up near Bundaberg, but inland. Mm. Okay. Mining?
0: Is that the primary?
1: Um, um... Yeah, I could probably... Um, I'm trying to zoom. I've got the map here, but it's a PDF map, so I'd need to, yeah, (laughs) probably I'm just going to say yes um, for the sake of it. Um, So no doubt probably is. Um, WA Belmont, Victoria Park, WA Midwest, WA Bunbury, but here's one that's interesting. So all of those first lot all look like your mining towns, okay? All WA. All look like, you know, your Queensland W. But here's here's the first one that's uh, number six on the list, Perth. City. Mm. So that's your apartments. That's your apartments.
0: And Perth had a vacancy rate prior to COVID, had a vacancy rate at, at one point up to 20% or something ridiculous.
1: It was high. Oh, yeah. So of interest, uh, you know, WA was late to the party with the, the, the crazy market gains and, you know, market getting hot. Mm. It looks like it might be the first to leave the party
0: mm. based yeah. on some
1: of the trends I'm seeing.
0: That's a ripple effect for you, isn't it? Yes. It's at the
1: very end of the
0: pond. <laughs>
1: yeah, yeah, it's end of the pond. So it's a weak <laughs> ripple. It was a weak ripple. <laughs> yeah. Weak ripple. Um, so I couldn't say that five times fast. So, oh, yeah. yeah, it is interesting. But, you know, Brisbane, in a, it, all the usual suspects are there. So what if I were to summarise that loss, the, 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 the win-loss ratio, the ones that have performed poorly, most of these, you know, some of these, are, well, they're all, you know, 46%. So more than half of the properties in the last 12 months in these regions are selling at less than 75K gain.
0: And one of the things that I'm seeing in a lot of those forums is people talking about WA. Oh, we should be, you know, it's got to come good, you know, that sort it's of
1: scary. It's scary. Oh. And look, it, it, there seems to be, I don't know if I'm just noticing it more now, but there's more and more people um, actually getting on a soapbox and um saying silly things about the marketplace and it's just um unfiltered it's out in these forums it's being heard by thousands of people I know. and it's absolute sh1t
0: it's heartbreaking actually if people do actually take
1: i saw action. one person saying here's my formula use gut use you know step one step two you know what his step three was use your gut feel <laughs> don't use data use your gut feel that was his uh, number three so this was a, an advisor this yeah. was a buyer's agent advising people on where to buy and his third point was don't use data use a gut feel go you good thing
0: uh anyway i just it's okay. yes shouldn't be allowed to call themselves buyers agents and uh, number seven
1: number seven on the we're on the bad list are we Mm, Whistler, yeah. Okay, so we've yeah, gone through Bunbury, Perth City, Eyre Peninsula and Southwest South Australia. All right. And number eight was Gladstone. Famous, number
0: famous n- mining town. <laughs> and number like nine was infamous. Townsville, but
1: Townsville's an interesting one because there's been a lot of good data turning out with Townsville, but again, um, you know, you've just got to look at these places that are fairly remote cities and um, have a dependency on heavy industry and all mining. <laughs>
0: I mean, Townsville was touted as, you know, I remember some years back, it's going to go off because there's an airport and there's this and there's that and all this infrastructure, blah, blah, blah. And then I've met more than one um, self managed super fund investor who got spruced into buying some apartments in Townsville and, you know, ended up basically six, seven, eight, nine years after buying it, realizing they've done nothing. Awful, awful.
1: Well, probably one of that 57% Mm because the win-loss ratio there was 43. So 43% sold above 75K. 57% didn't.
0: So that's, yeah, odds on you're going to lose money.
1: Uh, Depending on your asset class. Well, that's odds
0: on though, isn't it? 50-50, you've got more than a 50% chance of losing your money. Just anyway. Yeah. Last one.
1: Last Uh, one on the list, Limestone Coast SA.
0: Oh. Where is
1: Ooh. that? <laughs> That's, it's on the coast. There's
0: limestone there. It's in South Australia. Yes. Okay. Ah <laughs> oh dear. All right. There you go. So, WA dominates. Uh, WA that
1: list is pretty strong. Yeah.
0: South Australia, and then you've got a bit of the Queensland. I'm mining. trying
1: to find a, a New South Wales. There's no New South Wales in the list.
0: And listen, this is interesting too because, you know. Once again, in these forums, you go, oh, I'm not going to invest in, I don't know, New South Wales, Sydney, whatever, Melbourne, because it's had its run.
1: <laughs> it's just mm. like
0: markets don't just have one run.
1: Mm. <laughs> they just Well, we've said this. Remember, if <laughs> yeah. you look at the eastern suburbs through the long, long period where you've gone through some serious recessions, we're not just talking people who've entered the market in the last 20 years. We look back 30, 40 years. I was looking to buy an apartment in Coogee, and I did the deep dive analysis. And you know what happens in these gold suburbs, these gold areas, is they just flatten in the really, really hard times. They
0: don't have to sell.
1: Don't have to sell.
0: And interestingly enough, and I was actually listening to one of your suburb trolls um, episode, a quite serious one actually, where you were talking about the gap between you know the privileged investor who can afford to buy A grade, and and if you you know, looking at that coastal um, strip versus the investor that is driven to find affordable areas, affordable locations, affordable types of properties, and uh, that gap is getting wider. It's, it's like decoupling. It's
1: like it's, it's two different really markets. It's scary. So, the, mm. the, you know, if you're a young family and you've got 700K budget, you've got the RBA banging on rightfully, saying high risk, high risk. Mm. So you, you've got all these pressures. And so what am I going to do? What Do I either rent? or do I go and buy a house in one of these areas or do I go to an apartment?
2: Mm.
1: And, that, and so you're being squeezed and the pressure the pressure, and the risk just because you're not from a wealthy family. Mm. You don't have to be wealthy, but just a family that's going to give you a leg up. If you're in that category, you are up against it because now we're creating intergenerational risk
2: mm.
1: Yes, because you don't have the privileges that your parents had to go and buy in a 10k from the city spot for a reasonable price you're now buying in a 200k from the city at an affordable price or buying an apartment yeah and that worries me and i just don't think governments are fronting up they're effectively leaving it back what a nice segue back to they're leaving it to the build to rent sector to fix it you know
0: yeah and in fact i was thinking the segue back to that as well in the sense that from an investor point of view, if you can't afford to buy an A-grade quality asset, and that is expensive. And I've said many times, investing in property is, rightly or wrongly, it's a rich man's game, a rich person's game, right? Um, because you do need to have a good income to better sustain and support you know, the ownership costs of an A-grade asset. And um, so maybe the bill to rent will offer Safer op- potentially, and this is no, not definitely not an re- endorsement or a recommendation, but potentially the build-to-rent may offer a, a less leveraged, less risky way to invest less amount of money in the property market for those who can't afford to buy a-grade assets. So potentially there's an opportunity there that you know we'll have to keep an eye on.
1: Yeah, or or uh, it gives you a, a better option to be a stable rent investor.
2: Absolutely, and And, that's my
1: that's my angle on all this. Is I would personally rather Mm. you know live in a in a long term lease um, in a in a really well designed, well managed uh, built to rent property, and buy something in a a good spot. You know, if I had Mm. a million bucks to spend and I wanted to live in the city, I'd probably do that and go and spend a million bucks somewhere else, up and down the coastline somewhere. I'm
0: inclined to agree. Well, thanks, Ken. That's been a great. Chat and some excellent insights. Um, can I ask next time we meet? And so we're doing this still slightly less frequently, say so every two months. Now, I think what would be really good to talk about would be how about we do a QA on because we get, we see these forums, everyone's asking, where should I buy? And they ask, well, you know, I've heard X, X location is a great place to invest. How about we do a QA? location-based Q&A so listeners send in your questions mm. and we'll do Kent's data-driven Q&A location Q&A
1: suburb karaoke suburb yeah.
0: that's what you call it that's so much <laughs> catcher so it's an elephant suburb karaoke right send in your questions listeners about your locations and we'll do data dive on them
1: very good
0: excellent thanks
1: thank you Thanks for joining us. We'd love to see you again.
0: And remember, don't be a dumbo.